You're listening to episode 56 of the National Centre for Writing podcast. Every week we tell stories about writers and discuss writing techniques. It's the sunny 7th of August 2019 here at Dragon Hall in Norwich as we're recording today's episode. I'm Simon Jones, Digital Marketing Manager here at the Centre, and I'm joined by Communications Manager extraordinaire Steph McKenna. Hello, Simon. Hello. So, Steph, we haven't done this for a while. What are you reading right oh, now? Put me on the spot there. So, at the moment, I have I've just started reading a book by Paul Tremblay. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Um, it's a short story collection called Growing Things and Other Stories. Um, I've read one of Paul's books before. It's called A Head Full of Ghosts. He's sort of a sort of a horror writer, I guess. Um, he's written this short story collection, which is a bit horror, a bit sci-fi. Um, it's fabulous, actually. I've really, really enjoyed it. I wasn't sure whether I would. I'm, I struggle with short story collections sometimes. I find that, hmm. you know, it takes, because you only spend a short amount of time in, you know, with those characters, a few, a few short pages, I find it a bit harder to feel in, invested in. I, I like to be invested in what I'm yeah, reading. fully enveloped yeah, in the story. Yeah, so for me, it's it's often very much about the characters. So I struggle a bit, but these are actually really, really effective. And I think it's it's only very recently come out. So I definitely recommend that for anyone who enjoys short story collections or likes a bit of genre, a bit of horror slash sci-fi kind of storytelling. Sounds like I should check it out. I think you should, actually. Personally, I think you should. I used to read a magazine called Interzone, okay. which was a monthly magazine. still is. It's still around. Uh, it's very mm. good. But that's a science fiction monthly short story magazine oh, fantastic. where every month there's a bunch of short stories in it and you never quite know what you're going to get yeah. and it has that thing where with the best science fiction short stories they take an idea mm-hmm. and explore it yeah. for a small number of words mm. and then they finish yes and it's, absolutely. it's quite satisfying in that regard yeah these um, these very much sort of they give you an eerie feeling there's something eerie about them mm. they're not not always fully explained there's a bit of mystery to a lot of these stories you're not quite sure what what you're dealing with, but I like that kind of, that eeriness. You just get a sense that something's not quite right. Yeah, I think science fiction and fantasy benefits particularly from the short story Mm. format because they don't have to make it make full sense. Yes, So if you're reading a a novel, Mm. it has to kind of have some kind of internal logic. Well, I think with the short story, you can get away with exploring Mm -hmm. a wacky notion in whatever short number of words you're doing it in and it doesn't have to completely make sense because it's more about that idea and just kind of spinning that around a little bit. You're right, actually. Yeah, that's very true. Mm. What are you reading? I'm at the moment reading a bunch of comics. I'm kind of going down a Kieran Gillen rabbit hole. Okay, yeah. Kieran Gillen being a writer who started off in games journalism, which is how I knew him, and then he transferred into comics. So it kind of feels like he's been writing for me Brilliant. his entire yeah, career. I was going to say, so he's just your best friend. <laughs> yes, one way or another. Um, and he's written a really wide range of comics. So he's written for Marvel uh, for years. He's now doing his own comics. He wrote something called The Wicked and the Divine, which mm, is very, course, very good. Yeah, I've got that. You've got that for me for my birthday. I did. I'm very excited. Yes, I haven't yeah. read it yet. That's my kind of evangelising yep. of Kieran Gillen's work. <laughs> I appreciate um, that. But yeah, I'm kind of going into his back catalogue and reading some of his older Marvel stuff. Oh, which brilliant. He still manages to inject his particular mm. interests and styles into the standard Marvel formula. So I'm reading his Journey into Mystery series. Wow, I love it. I love it when you get like really into a specific writer or a graphic mm. novelist or whatever, and you go through their kind of back catalogue and really want to like absorb everything. Yes, I love exactly. that feeling of being really into a particular. Yeah. I find artist. it quite intriguing when when you have something that is a kind of monolithic franchise Mm. run by a big company like Marvel, where they have their own style, it's been going for decades. But when you can get writers who come in and are able to just 
twist it mm. towards their sort of idiosyncrasy. So their own style, yeah. Yeah, and sort of make both of those things work simultaneously. Very cool. So yeah, good stuff. Um, so this weekend, mm. you are heading to Edinburgh. I am. I'm packing my bags. I need to buy a rain mac because I think the uh, the weather forecast doesn't doesn't look too no, great. I think the whole country is Typical, going yeah. to be very windy. It's going to be a wet. bit wet and windy this weekend. So I'll be packing my, my summer wear and my rain mac. But yes, heading to Edinburgh with uh, Rasheen and Peggy, my colleagues, at the weekend to... Uh, We've got an event with uh, Val McDermott for the International Literature Showcase, which we've mentioned before, which people can check out on our website. Um, and we'll also be sticking around for, because it's, it's a bit of a trek, so we'll be sticking around for a few extra days to check out the Book Festival and uh, Edinburgh Fringe. So I'm really looking forward to it. So if anyone's in Edinburgh, you can go to the event, which is on Saturday at 3pm at the National Library of Scotland. It is, and it's completely free. Yes, uh, we will also be live streaming it on the website. And the next episode of the podcast, mm. which is going to be arriving a bit early, it's going to be going up on Saturday as well, that has a new conversation between Val McDermott and Sean Kane, who is the book's editor at The Guardian, talking about Val's amazing selection of writers. Mm. Looking forward to that very much. Yes. So today on the podcast, we have Alicia Morgan who you spoke to, Steph. Can you tell us a little bit about who Alicia is and why she's here at Dragon Hall? Yes. So I had the great pleasure of speaking to Alicia uh, yesterday about her residency here at Dragon Hall. So this came about, this residency came about, it's a week-long residency. It's called A Room of One's Own, which I'm sure is a title lots of people will be very familiar with. So 90 years ago, Virginia Woolf published her groundbreaking essay, A Room of One's Own, which posited that to be a writer, a woman needed money and a room of her own. So she, in this essay, she talks about many of the, the women whose lives have remained completely unrecorded in literature because they don't have the space, the time or the support to write their story. So we at the National Centre for Writing joined forces with the Royal Society of Literature to offer a week-long residency at Dragon Hall to address this topic. So we were giving a female-identifying writer the time, space and support to write whatever they wanted for a week in Dragon Hall. And we were quite flexible about sort of times and dates and things. So a week that suits the chosen writer in August. Um, and they've got a, a key to one of the little rooms in our building. And they can make use of it throughout that week whenever they like. So we had many, many applications. It was a really popular scheme, which is fantastic, really is fantastic. And they're really of a high calibre as well. But Alicia um, was a successful applicant. And she is a poet, playwright, performer and culture maker who is now based in Norwich, um, but she came over from America earlier in the year, so she was in New York. And she, uh, it's really interesting, she gave a really compelling application about needing, you know, the, the time and space to, to write, but also uh, she's looking at writing about some of the untold stories of women in Norwich and in this building in Dragon Hall. So she's been doing lots of research. So that worked particularly well as well because it, it ties in really nicely with the themes of Virginia Woolf's essay. So I sat down with Alicia and she gave us some really interesting kind of tidbits from her, her research and the, the writing that she's been doing, which is fascinating. Um, and if anyone wants to follow what Alicia's doing, she has an Instagram account that's at Alicia13Morgan. So that's A-L-I-C-I-A, 13Morgan. And she's also setting up a Twitter and a Facebook to document her writing and the research that she's been doing about the women in Norwich. So, but she'll be posting those on Instagram soon, I expect. Excellent. Right. Well, let's get into it. 
Alicia, welcome to Dragon Hall as our Room of One's Own Writer-in-Residence. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Fantastic. And um, before we discuss your time here a bit mm -hmm. more, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from? Uh, I grew up in Peekskill, New York, which is about an hour outside of Manhattan, straight up the Hudson River. Um, it's it was a sm it's a small urban town um, city. I'm sorry, city people get angry when you say that. <laughs> um, it's it's urban. It's right on the Hudson River, so but it's um, you know it's part of the Hudson Valley. But when people say Westchester County and Hudson Valley, they think Scarsdale. They think it's very because that's a wealthy um, county. Uh, but Peekskill itself has it had its own set of uh, unique city problems. There's a lot of poverty. There was a lot of um, issues growing up, um, but I, I loved it. Um, and then when I graduated high school, I moved um, down to Long Island and I got um, involved um, a lot with the Lower East Side uh, punk and metal scenes. Yeah, and I yeah. moved to Lower East Side for a while. Um, and then that, that was a fantastic scene to get involved with. I wrote for a, a bunch of underground zines and played in some bands. Um, then I moved to Minneapolis, got involved in that scene. I got really involved with the anarcho-punk scene there and um, moved. ended up moving back to the Lower East Side. And then I moved to um, London and squatted there and got involved in that scene. That was in 1988. Wow. Um, and that was something to behold. Yeah, I that bet. Scene, that scene was really taking off at that, at that point. Um, but a lot of, I lived in Stoke Newington in a beautiful beautiful squat which just looked like a house yeah. it, it didn't you know it had electricity and it was they, they took squatting very so seriously the upper, the upper end of squatting well yeah they took it very seriously they were very organized and they were very involved in the movement i'd lived in a, a council squat before that and the whole building was coming down so um but the yeah the people that i, I was involved with were very very serious about the movement and about anarchism in general um so i moved back to uh to Manhattan after that, and, um, and then I, I uh, was involved in editing a magazine there um, called Metal Maniacs and working for Sterling McFadden, which is this big, mm. big teen uh, publisher, which did like Blackbeat and Right Right On, and I worked for Metal Maniacs, which was a Motley Crew. And, Wow, that was one of the one of the titles we did. But Metal Manix was more underground yeah. doom and metal mag, um, um, bands. Mm. So I ended up moving to New Orleans and lived there until um, Hurricane Katrina, which is I could I'm sure. writing a book about because that was its oh. own its own set of issues and I, I lost imagine. everything there. And then I moved back to Peekskill, uh, and then I met my now husband. <laughs> on MySpace. <laughs> Did you really? I didn't know that. And he's from Norwich, actually. So, um, yeah, yeah, we met on MySpace in 2007. And after Katrina, I was just, you know, I had, I, all my friends were scattered all over the, the country. And a friend of mine said, um, he said, Go on MySpace, this yeah. new platform. It's crazy and social media. Yeah, platform, it's weird. Yeah. I didn't have any, didn't even have a computer. I was using my dad's. And um, we knew of each other because we had both been in bands. And um, I was just like, hey, old person yeah. um, <laughs> whose work I admire. Yeah. Um, 
you know, how are you? And so we started writing each other, and then I went over here to visit, and I fell in love with it even back then. Amazing. And we started this long-distance thing, and here I am. I fell in love with Norwich, and... And you're finally here. And here I am, yeah. Finally here, after moving around so yeah, much. Exactly. Now, yeah, exactly. Norwich uh, is now home. Yeah, so I love it. I absolutely love it. That's fantastic to hear. And did you have, so you've done quite a bit of writing before. You said you wrote for magazines and did yeah, you do anything else? I did. I mean, I did a lot of nonfiction, a lot of, um, you know, interviewing and a mm. lot of, um, you know, um, journalism. And I did a lot of um, sort of angry feminist and, I, you know, women's health stuff, but I've always done um, prose and poetry, and it sort of came to the last couple of years. I was encouraged to submit some of my stuff. Um, I ended up submitting a, um, a play actually about the uh, um, the activist and artist. I'm going to butcher his name, David Bochnovich. Warnerovich, as I always pronounce it, mm, mm. Um, from the, uh, he was a fantastic writer, activist, artist from the Lower East Side, wow. and um, so Voichnovich, um, and uh, who was one of my idols. And I submitted um, there was a to the Hudson Valley uh, Museum of Contemporary Art, as it's known now, because um, they had an exhibit called Circa 1986, um, which had his work in it as well as a lot of other artists. Um, so I submitted my work. I submitted this s- small three-act play, and um, it got accepted, and it mm. was performed with actors, professional actors, and uh, I sort of steamrolled from there. Um, and I did uh, submit, did some readings on the Lower East Side, and um, I've just been. I wrote. I've been working on a book about my time in New Orleans, and just submitting, and you know. Here I am. Right, wherever you can, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I'm very inspired by Norwich. I'm really, you know, it's just, like it says, it's the city of stories. Mm. And, you know, it's one of the, I, you know, I, I think one of the just places in the world where people are inspired to write, mm. you know, just walking down the street, it's very inspirational, you mm. know, mm. so... Have you struggled to find a writing routine before? Yes. Um, because I can imagine if you're, you know, writing for work, it's okay. It's a certain type of writing. But if you're, yeah, moving around, so busy, like finding a, an actual space and time to write must have been a challenge before. Yeah, especially, you know, especially working. My last job was working in a library and I did uh, the programming there and I was always writing press releases and it's a very different type of writing, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, you know, writing for other people. And I, I worked at a film festival. I founded this film festival. And so I was constantly writing, um, you know, little blurbs about people's films and having to rewrite rewrite it. And then I'd have to come home and work. And, I'd, you know, I'd get home at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night and then trying to find time to write my own stuff and writing. And another thing is, is that I write sober now. And mm. that's a big deal because mm. um, I don't really drink anymore. Mm. And I would, um, I was sober for two years, mm. um, not drinking at all. And that the last couple of things I submitted, I didn't, I wrote completely sober mm. and I don't think I'd ever 
written any kind of poetry or prose sober before. Mm -hmm. You know, it's always much more comfortable to come home and have a glass of wine or a bottle. Yeah, or two. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And sit there and be like, oh, it flows so much better. And then saying, nah, I'm not going to do that anymore because how are you going to, you know, and to try not to write it all night Mm -hmm. either. Because, you know, those are unhealthy habits to get into. You Mm -hmm. get into that rut of thinking, oh, I have to... I have to be, I have a slight buzz to do anything creative. It's a creative. stereotype, isn't it? You yeah, get that sort exactly. Of, that image of the, 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 the drunk writer. Exactly. Or those great writers before us. You know, all that nonsense too about, you know, and you have to narcoticize yourself mm. to be creative. Yeah, I think yeah. that's not, you know, that's a bunch of nonsense. Yeah. You know, people think they have to be, you know, Bukowski or, yeah. you know, well, yeah, exactly. you know, or, or Jim Carroll or, you know, even... You have to even to play music. You have mm. to be, you know, you have to be on some kind of drug or um, or drunk to pr- produce good mm. great art. You know, come on, stop, mm. stop doing that. Yeah, absolutely. But it's I completely uh, share with you that that experience of spending all day writing because that's what I do in my job as well, writing yeah. copy and you know marketing and tweaking bits of copy all day, all day. And then to go home and try and get in a completely different headspace yeah. is just, A, almost impossible. And yeah. B, I just don't want to write because, you know, I'm so tired of doing it eight hours a day. So yeah. completely, it, completely sharing that. It Like it sucks out the, you know, I feel like it sucks the creativity it do, Yeah, it it's, does. Because, yeah, the day job is creative in a sense, but there's, yeah, a lot of restriction, isn't there? Yeah, it's, exactly. It's... It, you know, my husband's an artist too, and he's a really great artist. And he, you know, we both talked about wanting to get part-time jobs. His job is with the NHS and mm. he doesn't, he just puts his head down and mm. works, um, works in records and, you know, gets on it, gets on with it. And he's, you know, his thought is just to get a job now where I don't really have to think, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. where I can just do something, you know, work something where I don't have to write you know yeah um and just you know come home that way my head will be clear yeah my last job I just took my work home all the time time. I was constantly stressing about it all Mm. the time you know and um I'm never going to get this done yeah I don't you know time's running out yeah you know it's not really but you know I'm not going to live forever yeah I know exactly what you mean yeah so we we team National Centre for Writing teamed mm-hmm. up with the Royal Society of Literature to offer this uh, a room of one's own residency here at Dragon Hall. It marks the 90th anniversary of Virginia Woolf's groundbreaking essay, and it, the residency itself seeks to offer uh, a female identifying writer the space, time, and support to write, which is something that Virginia Woolf talks about in this essay. Um, so I think we've probably covered it a bit already, but what made you want to apply for for the residency? Oh, I, first of all, the, the idea of is so clever of this mm. residency. Mm. You know, I I think women especially don't. I, there, there was two, there was two thoughts of this. There was two thoughts of I know, and not putting them down, but I mm. know a lot of women that a lot of how do I say this without mm. sounding really cool? A lot of hobbyist mm. uh, writers and a lot of hobbyists artists, mm. women and men, mm. you know, who, who do have the time to sit at, you know, and, mm. and do stuff part-time. Mm. And then I know a lot of really good writers and artists that are just beat down because yeah. they have to work so much, yeah. like we were just discussing. And the idea that you could provide this, mm. and you also were really flexible in, you know, making it work mm. with mm. people that, you know, were working. I'm lucky at this moment that I, you know, that I could 
you know, come here and do mm-hmm. this during the day, which mm-hmm. which I've never done before. Yeah, I've never written yeah. during the day. So oh, that's it, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So because I'm always working, mm, I'm, yeah. I've gone from one job to one job to one job where I've never had time to work dur- right during the day. And it's been such an interesting experience. Mm-hmm. And that was why one of the reasons I wanted to, to apply um, besides it being so inspired by writing here in mm. this p- place, mm. was that I've never had the luxury to write during yeah. the day. I'm always working, so yeah, it's that space and time, isn't it? And we yeah. often, I mean, we we offer sort of you know lots of workshops and classes and yeah. things on you know how to fine tune the craft of your writing, the actual writing. But at the same time, you know, we've started to introduce uh, sessions on you know, how to get funding, how to make space in your life to write around your work, how to juggle finances if you want to take writing a bit more, you know, seriously. exactly. And I mean, those are the questions that a lot of people have because they're like, you know, actually I'm in a place where I'm comfortable with the way that I write, but the actual space and time and finance of it, those are the like almost the unanswerable questions people are always looking for. Um, yeah, looking for advice and ways to kind of solve those. They're the big problems, aren't that, they? That's really, and, then, and that's really important too, because, you know, and, and I found too that, you know, it hard, trying to break into the clique mm. of, of writers too, because they're very, writers, poets, artists mm. are very clicky, you know. And, and you just arrive in quite a small, it's, you know, Norwich is quite a small city. It's got a really vibrant artistic community. But it, yeah, I know. It can be, you You're coming know, in as an outsider per se, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. And I just, I'm so grateful for this opportunity because it's been, just to keep the door open. I'm watching the traffic go by <laughs> in King Street. And because, because I'm trying to, write and make a connection with the way my life's been in some of the choices that I've made mm. being an outsider and the women of you know that have been outsiders in Norwich you know mm. whether they've been you know working in the sex industry or just you know touched by some area of madness in their mm. lives you know um, being down here in this area um, has been really inspiring in itself mm. you know mm. so um, so I, that's I'm grateful for I and I'm grateful that there's um, Places like uh, National Center for Writing that are b- being able to offer this these uh, innovative programs mm. because uh, you know not just have nationally known writers or internationally known writers you know that are that are coming here. Mm. So fantastic. Um, what nice way, segue there. Um, what do you what are you working on whilst you're here for this week? Well, I'm I'm doing some some new writing, mm. um, and you know going doing some new trying some new ideas mm, which are mm. which are I'm trying to bounce them off the idea of things that have happened in my life that a lot of people don't know about mm, me mm. that you know I haven't really been comfortable to talk about some experience that I've that I experiences that I've had and I'm mm. still like uh, you know if I talk about them will I get a job mm, mm. um experiences of you know discrimination mm. and, and experiences of you know, mental distress yeah. and um and then the women that have lived here mm. that have had similar experiences, whether, you know, uh, you know, some of the first asylums, some mm. women that have worked in, you know, in various sex trades mm. here. Mm. Um, and I, I, I'm not sure, like, you know, like I said, how comfortable I am talking. I find, that, I'll put it this way. Mm. I find that, Anytime there's been any kind of literature about mm. that, it turns into this kind of, <laughs> and I, I always use the word like, um, like some kind of, uh, 
bipolar or mm. emotional mm. porn. You know what I mean? Yep. Everyone wants to read about or depression porn. Yep. You know what I mean? It's always like, I did this. I did this. It was degrading. It was, and then I'm better. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's or always I'm a nice resolution. Managed, at the end. You know what yeah. I mean? And it's always also the story of they always come from well-off backgrounds and they go into nice asylums. And then there's always like a part A of, um, I use asylum jokingly. Yeah. Um, yeah. they go into, you know, it's always like part A is this terrible things that I did. And to part B is, you know, the treatment and part C is, the, the, um, the reconciliation and part D is I'm doing so much better now. And that's not the experience of 90% of the world. You know, there's, you know, especially people are, you know, are untreated. Um, and I'm, so I'm doing some research, um, about women, uh, through the ages, um, in, in, you know, in Norwich and around the world, um, that that's not been, that's not been the, their experience. Mm-hmm. This is putting you on the spot a little bit, but thinking about those kind of stories that you've been researching, what are off the top of your head, what are some of the interesting things that you found out about so far about the unwritten women of Norwich? Well, I would say it's funny. You were, um, we were just talking about this. Um, I was looking at this woman, Mae Warner, um, who was an inmate. And I use that term specifically because she was an inmate mm. of, um, the Norfolk County Asylum in the 1800s. She was admitted in 1881. And it's interesting reading the notes because I, you know, I think what it would be called today was she had some kind of, um, I'm looking for the word of it. Basically, she was, she thought she was unclean. She was washing a lot. Um, I'm not sure. Like an OCD. Yeah, OCD. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, they, they said she was a very good seamstress. She, but she appeared vacant and, but she was quiet. You know what I mean? Mm. But so, you know, you know, in this day and age, you know, they would have treated her for OCD most likely. Um, so, but, you know, but by, she was admitted in December. By the next year, six months later, they were saying from that by her, she had, oh, by the way, and she was unmarried and no kids. And she was 33. Oh, so alarm bells. There. Yeah, she's, exactly. Whoa, she's hold on be insane. there. But that was in December. By November of the next year, um, she had confided to her nurse that, this is her doctor writing, that she had some very strange delusions that he, that I go to her room at night and took liberties with her. Of course, the nurse runs to the doctor and says that. Um, a month later, she tells the doctor to please stop doing that. Mm. For the love of God, mm. please stop doing that. And do, do, do you consider her a wicked woman? You know, and implores him, you know, please stop doing that. Um, three months later in March, she's still under the illusions that he's doing that. And so much so that she sews her nightgown shut at night. Mm. You know, and I, you have to think to yourself, you know, this woman comes in with OCDs, quiet. And then, you know, six months later, she's having delusions Mm. that her doctor's raping her, you know? And she's got no, she has no other delusions. It's just one very consistent quote-unquote delusion. Exactly. No other delusions, you know? So, uh, and then, so she ends up being moved and getting horrible um, lung disease. So she's moved to another ward, which she stays for the next four years, you know, in this, in this hospital, 
for four years. And then finally she's discharged and there's a lot more stuff that happens, but mainly she's sick. They keep saying that she's having delusions. She, she must be having delusions, but they're not really proving it. And then, um, she ends up at, I think in 1887, they say either she's having delusions or she's, she's pretending that she's not having delusions but sure. she, and being quiet about it. So she must be like, I'm just going to get out of here, not say anything just anymore. Keep quiet. Exactly. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, I've been reading about other histories um, of women. There's a lot of that going on. There's mm -hmm. another woman that had 10 children. And after every child, she would go into the mental institution. Wow. And, you know, it's like postpartum depression. Mm -hmm. And these poor women, mm -hmm. um, I just and that that was from a project called Change Minds in 2015 mm -hmm. that uh, the Restoration Trust did, um, and I just in reading about this these women and even up here in Dragon Hall, there had been um, rooming rooming houses and there had mm -hmm. been some prostitution here and mm -hmm. there was some prostitution in a lot of these rooming houses along here along King Street and some of the other places and you know it still goes on. Um, and you think there's a lot of stories that are, these were written down, but there's a lot of stories that are unwritten mm. about these women that were, you know, if you were, if you were poor, if you were widowed, if you had children, if you, you know, that's sometimes the path you mm. had to take. Yeah. So, um, and if you were mad, that's definitely, yeah. you know, you were not very well taken care of. So that's mm. mm. fantastic fascinating so hopefully yeah. you well you've already uncovered quite yeah. a few but I'm sure there's many many more to tell um so you've been here just one day actually a day and a half yeah. now so yep. um what's the experience been like so far the sights and sounds of Dragon Hall and King Street been a, a helping or a hindrance no, hopefully it hasn't been too bad it's been it's been fantastic and um I, it, this room is is great and I have the door open so I can hear the traffic um, going by on King Street, but um, which is which is what, exactly mm. what I wanted, because um, the, you know there's builders walking by mm. and there's um, I just just like I could imagine it, you know, when it was a merchants hall, mm. you know, there's river right there, so busy street, yeah, very busy exactly, street, and I'm yeah. it's, it's always has been, and you know I can hear footsteps above this room. Look at that! I mean, look at the beams in this room and the bricks. It's an amazing room. I We're know. Sitting in one of our smallest rooms in Dragon Hall, it's the Smith Room. Um, yeah, just wall-to-wall -wall beams and the yeah. old door with stained glass. Exactly. And, and this was, I think this was a rector room mm, that, was, took, yeah. that helped take care of um, Julian, the church of uh, mm -hmm. uh, Mother Julian, which is another inspiration. Another lovely connection. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, if you, Mother Julian was the, wrote the um, uh, Revelations. Revelations of Divine Love. Yes. Yeah, which is one of the first books written by a woman yeah. in the world. So that's we love our city, but we're a city of stories, but we like to call ourselves a city of firsts as well. Yeah. We've got quite a few of those, which is amazing. Um, and do you think you're, are you hoping to carry this project on after this Absolutely. week? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've already started writing um, some, some new things and, uh, you know, I'm going to tighten those up and um, hopefully get those out somewhere, um, submit them somewhere. And then, like I said, I'm going to I'm hopefully going to use this woman's voice to write something, mm. you know, because she didn't have a voice. Mm. I, I, so I want to use her somewhere. And what did she think? Mm. Um, what was her, you know, what would she would have said, mm. you know, when she was there? Mm. Cause I can't find any 
I don't think there's any record um, that she which she would have written. Mm. If it was, it was lost. Yeah, know? I imagine they so, didn't keep hold of she that. Was, it would, would have been great if she was a seamstress. It would have been, and she apparently spent all her time sewing. Mm. And God only knows what she, you know, yeah. what she made, you know, yeah. and um, that would have been lovely. But, you know, that stuff's lost. So, mm. so I have to give her a voice. I feel like I have to give again. her a voice. Yeah. So. Fantastic. Well, good luck. I Thank you. you. Enjoy you. the rest of your week here and keep checking back in with us because we want to see how this is going yeah. and how hopefully we're still loving Norwich. And Yeah, yeah I, absolutely. And thank you. Thank you to the National Center and the Royal Society for Literature for giving me this opportunity. Thanks for listening and thanks to Alicia. If you have questions or want to get in touch, you can find me on Twitter at Tarnamus. Steph, where are you? And I am at Steph X McKenna. And the National Centre for Writing can be found all over the place. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Writer Centre. You can search for us on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk where you can also sign up to our newsletter, which means you'll always be up to date on what we're doing. So please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast because it really helps other people to find it. Thanks again for listening. Do keep writing and we will catch you on the next episode, which is the super exciting International Literature Showcase episode with Val McDermott. <laughs>